This is the Colgrave Seabrook Foundation podcast in association with Hawk Week, the industry's leading trade title. This podcast is brought to you with the help of our sponsor, More People, the market leaders for professional recruitment across the UK and internationally. They specialise in horticulture, fresh produce, food, agriculture, and garden and leisure sectors. For more information, please visit morepeople.co.uk. We know that plants are under threat. The amount of species that are at risk at the moment is horrific, and no life on Earth survives without plants. I'm Neville Stein. Thanks for downloading this podcast from the Colgrave Seabrook Foundation. I'm one of the Foundation's trustees, and the reason that we decided to make this series of podcasts is because we know that horticulture is home to many great careers, but we also know that sometimes it's difficult to get good information about what it's like to work in the industry. So what we're aiming to do with this podcast series is to tell you about some of the jobs that people do in horticulture, introduce you to some of the people who are actually working in the industry, and maybe inspire you to find out more. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to talk to Raoul Curtis Machin, who is the Director of Horticulture and Visitor Experience at four Royal Botanic Gardens in Scotland. Throughout Raoul's long career, he's been heavily focused on one of horticulture's biggest themes, conservation. I started my interview by asking Raoul just what it means to be Director of Horticulture and Visitor Experience at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Scotland. It's a job where I'm sort of inspiring and hoping to lead about 120 staff amongst the horticulture teams inside and outside the glass houses and the visitor welcome teams and the interpretation. Oh, what I like about it is it kind of breaks down the, the silos, if you like. It's not pure horticulture. It's looking at the whole visitor experience. So what makes the garden look so stunning? So everything from the plants themselves to the labels to the smiling people that help you get orientated when you visit the gardens and your whole experience, really. So how we interpret it as well. What does the Botanic Gardens look like? If I've never been there, what should I expect to see? So the Botanic Garden itself is one of the, the, the biggest Botanic Gardens in the world. It comprises four gardens in Scotland. You've got the one in Edinburgh, Logan in Dunpeace and Galloway, Doik in the Borders, and Benmore over in Argyll and Butte. Four gardens are some of the best examples in the world of horticulture, practice and presentation. They get more than a million visitors a year collectively and they host some of the most world-renowned collections of plants and weird and wonderful species from all over the world. But they're also quite experimental, so we have new features like rain gardens and stormwater planters where we're looking to the future. You would expect to see a fabulous, stunningly colourful, beautifully presented large garden, which probably, if you didn't know, you wouldn't think it was that much different from your big National Trust gardens and your National Trust for Scotland gardens. They... um, they just contain a collection of mainly wild collected species. So you will still see great big spreads. I mean, Edinburgh's famous for its blue mechanopsis at the end of May. So there's nothing else like it. And it's rhododendrons. It's got the biggest collection outside of China. These things are knockout. But when you start to look for the labels, you realise that these probably aren't the types of plants you can nip down to a garden centre and buy. So they, they have the same impact and the same fantastic colour and smell and wow effect but they're mainly wild-collected species. How many different types of plants would I be seeing then as I wander around the gardens? In the botanics in Edinburgh, we've got hundreds of thousands, about 200,000 species now are in each of the gardens, but growing all the time. 
And we have fascinating areas like the yew hedge, which goes around the perimeter of the Edinburgh Garden, where if you think of the challenge of trying to conserve a species, so yew is threatened in a few different countries at the moment, you couldn't grow 2,000 different types of yew tree unless you had a gazillion acres to play with, which we don't. We're in the middle of Edinburgh. But you can grow 2,000 different types of yew trees in a hedge. So Martin Gardner, one of the former senior horticulturists at the Botanics, had this brilliant idea of planting and then conserving 2,000 yew trees, or a Noah's Ark for yew, in the perimeter hedge. And the hedge now is a speech in its own right. So technically, <laughs> you've got a lot of different species in quite a small area. So you mentioned in that four gardens and that they're sort of probably the best examples in the world. So why is it important that we've got organisations like the Royal Botanic Gardens Edinburgh? So you've got, um, at the moment, there's about 1,700 botanic gardens in 148 countries. And what botanic gardens do, they really, if you look at our basic mission, it's to explore, conserve and explain the world of plants for a better future. Now, we know that plants are under threat. The amount of species that are at risk at the moment is horrific. And no life on Earth survives without plants. So sometimes you can get a bit, what's the word, inured to this. It's like watching too many war things on TV and violence on TV. You can get too used to it. But that's a shocking statistic. Um, plants really can't defend themselves. We're busy ripping up their landscapes and their, their habitats. And we don't even, we're still discovering new species out there. So botanic gardens are kind of, they're on the front line of this sort of battle, I suppose, to try to protect the plants themselves, which help us live and breathe. So their work is absolutely critical. And it's something I focused on from the earliest age when I was about 14, 15, first getting into plants. And I thought this is really where I want to be, trying to make a difference, really, and trying to, to conserve what's left of the planet and give ourselves the best environment possible. Is that happening in far off distant lands or is it happening up there in Scotland? historically, it was probably more done internationally. We work in partnership with 34 different countries for science, research and horticulture. But we're doing a lot of conservation of species in Scotland and in the UK at the moment. So we have a programme called the Nature Restoration Fund where we're looking at species that are threatened in the wild, like the alpine sow thistle and the aran sorbus. And what we're doing is finding their isolated populations where getting genetic material and collecting from those populations that have become really weak and vulnerable in the wild and are quite isolated. We bring them back to Edinburgh and then we propagate them, we try and cross them with other populations. So we're giving that gene pool a beef up and a, a rejuvenation, if you like. When the plants are fit enough and that gene pool is fit enough, we then release thousands of these plants back out into the wild. Now, these are this is porticulture, I think, at its finest, where we're propagating those plants, we're growing them on, we're nurturing them, and then once they're released back in the wild, we're monitoring them via satellite technology and um, all sorts of technology to let us see how those plants get established. And we work with landowners all over Britain to try to get those plants established again. And this is a long-term programme. It's right on our doorstep. We do tend to think on TV it's somewhere in Madagascar or the Galapagos Islands, but no, it's right here. Are there projects that you are leading the world on? Yes. Yes, so we do a lot of work and at the moment we partner very strongly with Nepal. We're helping them map their entire flora. So that's every species of plant that you can find in Nepal. I mean, how many species is that going to be? Oh, hundreds of thousands. Big, big number. The third volume has now been produced with more to come. Uh, so you, 
and to be honest, are you ever at the end of that? You know, with technology now, our species identification is getting so tight that what we might have thought was a species 10 years ago might now be classified as 10 different species because our DNA mapping is getting so good. But we're also building skills and capacities in other countries. So in the past, back in the old colonial days, we'd have gone over and collected plants and brought them over to collect them and study them. And at some point, we might repatriate them, but not now. Not now. We're working with Tajikistan, for example, where we're helping them grow their alliums sustainably. They've been over-harvesting them in the wild and then selling them for cooking and ornamental purposes without any blame. They're just trying to make a living. What we've done with those communities, though, is show them that they can actually produce little nurseries and they can grow those alliums in community-based nurseries and they can make enough of income and enough of a livelihood to stop over-harvesting in the wild. That's been really successful, so we hope to replicate that in different countries. And from a practical point of view, you know, how are you delivering those produce? Is that a bunch of people, a team of you guys going over there, or is it a team of those guys coming over to you and sort of working alongside your skilled horticulturists here in Edinburgh? It's both, and primarily it's us going out because we want to do as much work in these countries as possible, what we call in-situ conservation, rather than having to up sticks. But for some of the training, it's really worth their while to, to come over to us in Edinburgh and learn directly from our science and hort teams. For someone who wants to get involved in your organisation then, what should they do? Come and visit the garden and have a, have a chat with us or go to whatever botanic garden or big garden might be closest to you. We have, I've, in the past, I've also chaired initiatives like Grow Careers, where we've tried to promote horticulture as a career. And what we've found, one of the most challenging aspects is that a lot of teachers don't really have any visibility of horticulture. It's no one's fault in particular, it's just that we are quite a specialist industry, I suppose, in the scheme of things. So for somebody to come along, we run an awful lot of courses, everything from starter horticulture to practical certificates in horticulture, right up to HND and degree level, as do a lot of the horticultural colleges. I would also recommend the Royal Horticultural Society, the RHS. They offer an awful lot of courses and ways in. So I think a lot of kids would love this as a career, but they might not see it or even hear about it because it's just, it's not part of the armory in schools these days. So part of it, I think, is up to us to try and get out there more. But also, if you are curious, then ask your parents, ask to go and visit gardens, speak to people in gardens. Are there opportunities if anyone wants to volunteer? Yes, yeah, we've got a small army of volunteers in all the gardens. And I know a lot of other organisations have great volunteer cohorts. Um, and that's a fabulous way in because often I think people might see horticulture, watch a programme in nice warm sunshine and think that looks like the career for me. There's a fair amount of getting out there when it's cold and windy, particularly in Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> and you add in the Highland Midge and some of the, some of the West Coast gardens, you have to be fairly tough and dedicated to it. So actually having a taster, either as a volunteer or a, as an intern or an apprenticeship is a great, great way forward. And could a volunteer get around to work in all the different departments to see what type of horticulture or what type of activity they might like to do? Yes. Yep. And we're just looking at how we offer a kind of a taster apprenticeship across all the four gardens. Pre-COVID, we were in a stronger position with our training and apprenticeships, but we're rebuilding that. And I think it's, again, with my visitor experience hat on, it's also really important that anybody going into horticulture also understands the visitor welcome bit and some of the commercial activities, how gardens these days have to finance themselves too. So it's giving people a taster of all those different areas. 
Ralph, so, you know, let's say someone was interested in a career in conservation and came to work at the Royal Botanic Gardens Edinburgh, what type of stuff would they be doing on a day-to-day basis? Uh, they'd be getting involved in all the work of the gardens teams from early doors watering before the visitors arrive and looking at the basic presentations, so checking on all the footpaths and the state of the loans, etc. But then they might get involved in some of the plant recording that we do. So we have the RSBG database, all our plants now recorded on handheld GPS devices where we do the identification, we will look at the state of the plant's health and record its condition. That will go on our database. They might get involved in propagating some of the plants, so working with teams inside the glasshouses, or it might be they would probably get involved in, in pruning parts of the beds. So the, we've got a constant cycle where we have regenerative pruning and some of the more of the grown areas. Otherwise, we would be pruning back some of the shrubs that might have just flowered, or they might get involved in shadowing to give a garden tour with a view to maybe getting involved in that. Equally, we run a lot of citizen science-based projects. So our phrenology research project at the moment is looking at flowering times and how they've advanced with the climate changing in the last 20 years. So effectively, across the board, it's a big generalisation, but plants are flowering about a month earlier than they were 20 years ago. So there's a massive variety of tasks that they'd get involved in. Any advice for someone just starting out? Cool. I think I would keep an open mind and try out as many different things as possible. I've had quite a circuitous route. I've tried a lot of different areas of horticulture, and to be honest, I've loved every bit of it. I started out 15, 16, wanting to save the rainforests, and the degree that was on offer at the time was landscape management at Reading. It was a bit more than just horticulture. Um, so I loved growing plants, but I wanted a bit more. And what that course did was it was 50% horticultural because a lot of horticulture and garden skills underpin ecology and broader landscape management. But I ended up in working in historic and heritage gardens and I found that fascinating because you're researching the layers of garden history and different designers and social influences on gardens and then you marry that with the plants themselves and rare plant collections and you're again you're doing a different type of conservation. Um, then I did a stint managing estates. I was head gardener at Warren House when I was 21 years old. So I then realised that you needed to learn people management skills. There's quite a lot other than horticulture skills that you need to learn as you progress through life. Do you still see yourself then as a horticulturist? Because presumably on a day-to-day basis, you know, you're very much more involved in management. Yes, I am. I'm a part of the executive leadership team at the Botanics, so we have an awful lot of more strategic meetings where we're looking at the numbers and the visitor flows and budgets and making those sort of bigger organisational decisions. But also, I'm an inspiring leader to the different horticulture teams, and there are 90 horticulture staff in the Botanics. I don't think I've ever lost being a horticulturist, and I think it's kind of vital, particularly with the bigger projects that horticulture is at the top table and you've got somebody that actually understands it because otherwise you end up with a lot of generalists and a lot of project management skills a lot of generic stuff which yes you need absolutely you need it but if horticulture is lost you can make some big mistakes if you get the glass specification wrong for a glass house you could be having 50 years worth of grief with plant collections and watering systems and so you have to absolutely keep your horticulture right up there with all your other skills that's wonderful to to hear you still feel that after all these years in the industry you still at your heart you are a horticulturist thinking you know about that a bit more 
In reality, what do you most like about your job now? It's what I've wanted to do since I was 15 years old. Um, there's nothing I'd rather do as a paid job than this. It's the, the people, the plants, the beauty, and that mission of just trying to explore and conserve, save plants, save the planet, ultimately. It's just such a buzz. That's really good. So the final question I've got for you is, what was your best day at work? <laughs> best day at work? I've got so many things to choose for here, but I'm going to pick a day that I had when I was Director of Horticulture at the Horticultural Trade Association. And we were working internationally. I was doing a lot of work in other countries, helping them with their industries. And we were trying to get a marketing grant out of the EU. So this was a a grant from the Trefia marketing stream, which was to market horticultural products in a different way. So we were taking plants, gardens, etc. And our argument was that we were trying to market them and we should be marketing these things as environmental service providers. We know that plants help cool cities down in summers. We know they help alleviate flash floods. We also know they've got a great social and a health and well-being benefit to us. And we went to the EU and said, we wanted this marketing grant. It was 1.7 million euros. It was over three years. And there were nine countries involved in this. So you imagine how tricky that is to actually coordinate it. And Muggins here had put his hand up to say, I'll do the drafting for you to try to get this into the best possible language. Because I'd just done my public affairs diploma, so I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Um, and of course, we got knocked back. Now, we got knocked back in about March of 2016. And we had the second chance to write this thing and get it in for the end of the year. Now, you'll know what happened in June of 16. We voted to leave the European Union yet we're still at the table. And they allowed us to go through this application process again. So I redrafted it. March 2017, we'd resubmitted it. I'd rewritten a lot of it and got everybody around the table. They all came to London and we got it. So we got this grant, which was, in the end, it was, uh, I think it was like 2 million euros we got. And the UK was part of it. And all that stuff made a big difference, marketing it to the policymakers and the politicians to just get that message across that there's so much more to just looking pretty that we do with horticulture. Thanks to my guest this week, Raoul Curtis Machin, the Director of Horticulture and Visitor Experience at our Royal Botanic Gardens, Edinburgh. We'll put a link to their website in the show notes. If you enjoyed listening, this podcast is part of a series of interviews with horticultural experts. Find them wherever you found this one. I'm Neville Stein, one of the trustees of the Colgrave Seabrook Foundation. Thanks for listening.